You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas begins a new series called Church History, now looking at Evangelism in the Early Church, Part 1. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. This is a mini-series Podcast on the topic evangelism in the early church, 30 to 200 AD. I was asked to teach this in Helsinki, Finland, and I thought it might be of interest to um, a wider audience, and thus this short series of podcasts. Let's begin with the definition of evangelism. It is simply spreading the good news, the Greek evangelion is a good news, a favorable proclamation. It's related to the English words evangelistic and evangel. The evangel is the gospel. The early church begins on the day of Pentecost, probably the year is 30 AD. And I'm taking it up to the end of uh, the second century, that is the year 200, the end of a century of intense persecution. So this study will cover almost two centuries. We'll begin with Acts in the New Testament, finish off the first century, and then then move into the second. In Matthew 28, something that hit me a few years ago is that the Great Commission is not just to make disciples of all nations. Because when we hear the word nation, we think of it uh, in terms of the modern uh, nation state, of which in the United Nations there are fewer than 200. But... All nations, all ethne, all ethnic groups, all peoples, or you could say all the Gentiles, are really people groups. So rather than 200 nations, it's more like 2,000 people groups, or is it 20,000? In other words, the mission is much greater than we might have thought. And also, just by way of introduction, I always think it's helpful to distinguish between mission and purpose. Our purpose is to know the Lord. Our mission is to make a difference in this world. So our purpose is connected to the greatest commandment, to love God with all we have, our most important relationship. Our mission, though, is related to how we reach out to others. The second commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see that there are two prongs to this mission, to help the poor, Matthew 25, and to preach the gospel, Matthew 28. This is exactly what happens in the book of Acts. Sometimes Christians get their mission and purpose confused. And often it's not helped by well-meaning preachers who will say, your purpose is to lead others to Christ. Well, it's certainly one of our purposes, but I think it confuses matters. And besides... Some days are more successful than others, aren't they? Our feelings shouldn't rise and fall depending on the results of our ministry. No, our feelings should be anchored to our relationship with God. Jesus said as much in Luke 10 when the disciples came back thrilled that they were being so successful in their mission. He tells them that you should really rejoice, rather, that your names are written in heaven. When you enter the auditorium of the sister church I often speak in in Singapore, you read above your head, 
we gather here to know God and to make him known. And I think that captures very well these twin truths of mission and purpose. What about the book of Acts? I have two impressions when I read it. And they are that evangelism was not particularly organized. That's my first impression. The second, however, is that it was vibrant. Things were popping. Things are really happening. And I know that Acts is kind of like a best-of album. It only covers 25 to 30 years of the early church, and even then, it's focused mainly on the ministry of Peter and Paul. And, and there must have been slow periods. But I still get the impression things are vibrant. That's number two. Number one, that they were not that organized. They were natural. We see in Acts 2 the root and the fruit. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. That's the root. And the fruit, verses 43 to 47, everyone's filled with awe. The apostles are doing miracles. They're together. They're sharing. They're enjoying the favor of all the people. Oh, the Lord's adding to their number. And some ministries emphasize fruit a lot more than root. And that's backwards, like the tail wagging the dog. If we focus on the root, I'm confident the fruit will come. If we focus on the fruit, it tends to create a climate of, of, of legalism and shortcuts. And I think the Spirit is showing us it's backwards. Evangelism is a very natural and organic thing. In Acts 8, when the church is scattered, we see the word preached publicly by the principal leaders and privately by others. Often, Acts 8.1 is used to show that with the apostles left behind in Jerusalem, all who were scattered preaching the word, it means that all of us need to preach the word wherever we go. Well, I think there's some truth to that, but I think we need to be a little bit careful because the two examples we have of those who were scattered and preached the word, well, let's just talk about one. That's Philip. Philip is not your, if you pardon my terminology, he's not your garden variety Christian. He's a powerful evangelist. We read at the end of Acts, he has four daughters who prophesy. He is an incredible guy, certainly worthy of our imitation. He's not an apostle. There is a different apostle Philip. This is a different man, Philip the evangelist. But if he's an example of the kind of people who, who preached the word when they were scattered, uh, you almost might make an excuse and say, it doesn't apply to me. I'm just a garden variety Christian. And yet we know that that's not the case, that evangelism was organic, it was dynamic, it was a groundswell, and many were involved. Uh, when I say evangelism was very natural, not organized, uh, but vibrant, I also would call attention to their apparent lack of interest in counting Oh, we know that there are 3,000 men who are immersed in water on Pentecost. And then in Acts 4, verse 4, we realize that the number of males, they only counted men back then, had reached uh, up to 5,000. But then there's nothing else. There is that one verse in Acts 21 where Paul's returned to Jerusalem and he's told that uh, you know, we, he needs to be sensitive to the Jewish culture of these believers at, because how many thousands or myriads in Greek, it's myriads, which is 10,000. How many tens of thousands have believed? 
I'm not sure whether myriad is being used figuratively as in just scads and scads, you know, huge numbers, or if it actually is tens of thousands as some translations have it. But really, that's all the counting, if you want to call it, that we have in the New Testament. It's not high-tech. It's not all that organized. It's just something the Spirit does. But my other impression is that it was vibrant. As in Acts 4 and 5, Peter and John, they're told to shut up. They say, we can't help speaking. I mean, you can try to shut us up, but we're going to obey God, not you. It's vibrant. We see in Acts 8, the Spirit's working with them. When Philip goes um, down to the road that leads towards uh, Gaza, the Spirit works with him. There's an angel involved. There's the Spirit involved. God has prepared this African who just happens to be reading Isaiah 53. Wow. Of all the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, this is the longest one, and it's the clearest one. And he just happens to be reading the part about the Messiah being led away and, and bearing our sins. And, and, and the Ethiopian eunuch has a very good question. Who's it referring to? Himself? Is Isaiah referring to himself, or is he referring to someone else? And he, it gives... It gives Philip the perfect in. It's as though you're riding the bus to work in the morning and the person next to you already has an open Bible. In fact, has a Bible open to Acts 2 and is asking, now, were these people already saved when Peter told them to repent and be baptized? I mean, it's, it's perfect. The guy's humble. He's, he's already, he already has his Bible open to the correct place. You don't have to tell him, please turn over here. The Spirit's working with them. And that seems to be the way that, that the, the church spread. Everyone was involved in it. Perhaps people served in different ways, different levels, and different roles. And so those are my impressions, that evangelism in the first century, at least in the book of Acts, was not really all that organized. They didn't have schemes and charts and all kinds of counting and accountability. It was very natural, and yet it was vibrant. Do you see that in the book of Acts? Let's move now beyond the book of Acts, which ends around the year 60, into the rest of the first century. The gospel's being spread throughout southern Europe, the Middle East, Asia Minor, which is a roughly modern Turkey, and North Africa. These are the lands of the Bible. In fact, in most of the whole Bible, that's, that's all it is. I mean, occasionally you'll read about India or Persia, but it, it tends to be... Uh, centered, the center of gravity of biblical history is in the Mediterranean. But there are strong, incredible traditions that Mark later went to Egypt and in the middle of the century established a Christian community in Alexandria. It's interesting that Paul never goes there. Alexandria was the second city of the empire between Rome and Antioch. So uh, I think it would be, uh, it's certain that, that Christians would have targeted Alexandria. And I'm, I'm aware of no uh, strong competing tradition, and so Mark goes to Egypt. That makes sense to me. Andrew goes to Asia Minor and to Scythia, uh, farther east, to the wild people. And John to Asia Minor, Ephesus, where there are multiple traditions that he ended his days. So there, there are parts of history related to the apostles and the early Christians, that you have to go to later writings for. And, of course, they don't have the same uh, historical value of the New Testament, 
But we have to weigh it all together. And then others go far away from Bible lands. Thomas goes to India. I used to be a skeptic, now I'm a believer. But that he went to South India in the year 52 begins a, a movement which, well, it still exists today, though. It doesn't have the fire or the form or the essence that it had originally. They call themselves Tomite Christians, Tomites. But Thomas begins work in southern India. And uh, even to this day, though India is predominantly Hindu nation, the more Christianized part is in the south. Thaddeus goes to Syria. And from there, as uh, they, they move east to Persia, they're persecuted and they just keep on going through uh, modern Afghanistan and into China, India. They, they hook up with the Tomite Christians, um, Mongolia, all the way. They, they approach Japan and Korea. They go down into Indochina. This becomes a great movement called the Church of the East, which today has lost its fire. Most of the members um, who are uh, still alive live in Iraq and Iran or Chicago. But in China, in the Middle Ages, there were thriving churches in every major city. This is not to be confused with the Eastern Orthodox. Eastern Orthodox, like the Roman Catholic, the Western Catholic, became state churches. That is, they, they had the, the law on their side. They had the weight of the, the state on their side. And that began in the 4th century. Church of the East was countercultural. It was not political. The missionaries were simple in their dress. They learned the local languages. Their goal wasn't to, to uh, make the converts Roman. Now, there wasn't a cultural imperialism. They were simply trying to spread the gospel. Fascinating story. And probably I'll do a podcast on the Church of the East another time. In the ninth century, the Chinese were cracking down on foreign cults. And so there was a great persecution of Buddhists and of Christians. And those who survived of the, this uh, movement, the Church of the East, were wiped out by Tamerlan. Um, you've heard of the Mongols and the conquests. And this is um, several hundred years later. And that's why, well... They, they lost strength because of that and because eventually they accommodated a bit too much to the surrounding culture. They became all things to all men, but in time they became too much like all men. So outside the Bible lands, we have Thomas in India, Thaddeus to Syria, and then this, this great movement, persecuted movement that, that dominates Asia. There's some evidence that even in the first century there were Christians in Britain. Now, of course, there were Roman soldiers in Britain, they tried to take it in the first century B.C. Uh, Julius Caesar was there. They don't really have great success to the first century A.D. And there's some small archaeological evidence that there may have been Christians at that time. And, of course, um, there's Paul's desire, he expresses in Romans 15, to go to Spain. Perhaps he was thinking of the prophecy of Isaiah 66, that those in distance, distant lands like Put and Tarshish would, uh, would come to the Lord, and he viewed himself as the apostle to the Gentiles, and, and that may, oh, since the, there's a Tarshish in Spain, that may explain what he's doing. He's trying to, to live out the, the mission of the church, to follow the Messiah as the light to the nations, Isaiah 49, 6, and so in Isaiah 66, the, the truth goes all the way to Spain, and, and so Paul wants to go there. That's something to think about. 
Let me give you a few further considerations before we close out this lesson. There were many challenges in the first century of Christian evangelism. Of course, there was persecution. We often think of the persecution as coming from the Romans. That's not quite accurate. Um, They certainly weren't great friends of the Christians. And Nero persecuted the church in the year 64 and probably from then to the time of his death, four years later. At the end of the century, um, Eusebius uh, tells us, Eusebius was the uh, church historian writing in the 300s, but he tells us that Domitian, the emperor Domitian, at the end of his reign, really cracked down on Christians. And that fits very well with the evidence of the book of Revelation. But apart from this persecution in the mid-60s and the late 90s, the Romans really weren't that involved. Persecution in the New Testament came much more from the Jews. After all, the Christians were trying to redefine Judaism. They were breaking away, and they were a great threat. Romans, however, become the persecutors of the second century. We'll get to there in the next uh, lesson. One challenge is persecution. Another one is false teaching. The number one false teaching in the New Testament times was that of the Judaizers. They said you had to be circumcised before you would be baptized. Being circumcised meant that you would live as a Jew, take upon your shoulders the yoke of the law, keep kosher, obey the Sabbath, be circumcised. Paul fought very vigorously against these people, for example, in his letter to the Galatians. This was the issue of the century. And the only recorded church council in Acts, the Council of Jerusalem, uh, 49 AD, was called in response to this threat. Now, not to say there weren't other false teachers of other flavors. There were Gnostics or proto-Gnostics like the Docetists, who John is dealing with in First and Second John. These are people who said that God is too holy to be take on filthy human flesh. Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He was just some kind of apparition, someone who appeared to be there, but the incarnation is what they denied. Um, he didn't really come in the flesh. Second John 7 says these people are the Antichrist. There, there were a number of false teachings, but the main one was the Judaizers. We read about them in Titus 1, in Galatians, in Acts, and a few other places. A third challenge was slander. In the early church, there were a number of rumors that were circulated. One was cannibalism. You might say, well, why would Christians be called cannibals? Well, think about the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Christians were eating the body and blood of their Lord. It was rumored that they ate children. See, they're eating the flesh of the Son of God, God's Son. And uh, for most of church history, non-believers, those who were not baptized, were told to leave the uh, service before uh, the communion, which always took place uh, behind closed doors. And so it was impossible to verify exactly what they ate unless you became a Christian yourself. Another slander was that Christians committed incest. Think about it. Brothers married sisters. There was a strong conviction that 
If you have a choice, you don't marry a non-Christian. Sisters married their brothers. Brothers married their sisters. <laughs> These are the kinds of slanders that were circulating. And oh, one more challenge. Their witness was definitely countercultural. Christians were swimming upstream. And clearly, Christianity stood out as an alternative lifestyle. It wasn't easy to be a Christian. Those are some challenges. Now let me just share some things that I think helped them. Well, I, I think it actually helped that they were countercultural because it identified them as not just being part of the established religion. They resisted uh, popular forms of entertainment. They took a strong stand when it came to the immorality of the theater, to the violence of the games, the gladiatorial shows, the chariot races. They were countercultural in adopting children and being opposed to abortion. They would sometimes sell themselves into slavery in order to free others. There are stories of Christians bribing prison guards so that they could enter the cell and spend the night with their brothers who were falsely imprisoned and give them encouragement. They forgave their enemies. They fed their enemies and refused to harm them in any way. Truly countercultural. And that really helped. There's one famous Princeton sociologist, Rodney Stark. He wrote an incredible book called The Rise of Christianity. I believe it was 1996. He says one reason the church grew so much, it wasn't so much that they had children or that they, that they spread the word that they did, it was that in times of plague, when the upper class Romans were heading to their country homes, to their villas, the Christians would stay and minister to those who were dying of, of the Black Death. Now, this doesn't make so much sense. It's a bit counterintuitive. If the Christians stayed to take care of people who were plague victims, wouldn't they die? Wouldn't that make their numbers smaller? Well, I'm quite sure that many Christians did die because of that very fact. But when the plague had passed, the community remembered that the politicians and the upper class pretty much just helped themselves, but the Christians were the ones who loved them. The Christians were the ones who would risk their lives to help others, and so that really helped their numbers. I think another thing that helped them in their evangelism in the first century was that uh, evangelism was centered in the home. Yes, as Acts 5 says, they went uh, publicly and house to house with the good news. It's not just in the temple courts and and other uh, public venues, but house to house. And, and this, to me, makes sense of why church leaders had to have families that were in control, not out of control. Because they met in your home. <laughs> to me, that makes much sense of First Timothy 3, Titus 1. But the homes were centers of evangelism. You say, what about church buildings? Well, the first church buildings don't even appear until the third century, which is beyond the scope of this mini-series. First church buildings um, uh, were found that come from 230 to 232 AD. I, I know of two examples. Oh, these were wealthy people's homes uh, because they're, they're the ones who can host the greatest numbers of people. Often they would knock a wall out and join two rooms to make a larger one if they didn't already have a large room. And they would add a baptistry for full immersion, which was the practice for for many centuries, and sometimes put some simple art on a wall. It might be 
a picture of the good shepherd, or perhaps they would have a cross. But it was very simple. But there's certainly no church buildings, um, custom-built church buildings, that have been discovered in the first century or even in the second century. Homes were centers of outreach, so hospitality was essential for the overseers because they presumably headed up the groups that met in their homes. I think a third thing that helped them is that they preached a person, not a system. When I became a Christian in the 1970s, this was in a campus ministry movement that was very vibrant. The, the churches where we worshipped were rather mixed. Some of the members, we called them the adults because we were all so young. Uh, some of them were, were on fire for God, and, and I have no doubt they were, and, and those who still live are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But many were not. Now, I remember talking to our campus minister once and asking him about the commitment of the grown-ups, you know, the older people. And I remember him saying that when he first came, he thought that perhaps only 60% were right with God, and, but now um, some had left, and he thought maybe it was 90%. So I wouldn't say we were a church within a church in the campus ministry movement, but it, there was definitely a difference between the fire of the, of the youth group uh, and of the campus ministry and the church as a whole. And so we never invited people to church until they had been studying the Bible for quite some time. When I was initially uh, approached at, a, at university, it was my second day at Duke University, two complete strangers invited me not to church. They invited me to a small group Bible discussion, and I said yes. And in the 70s and the 80s, for most of you listening to this podcast, you, you will remember that uh, small group Bible discussions were in vogue, and they were very effective. And if anything, we invited people to come to a small group study. But really, the, the invitation was to learn about Christ and, and to study the Bible with someone. Through the 1990s, church attendance was emphasized more and more to the point that, uh, in many places, small groups were no longer used because, as statistics were focused on, church attendance was, was the focus. In the 2000s, there was rebellion against this um, legalistic effort. And as a result, full swing pendulum, very little effort was put into evangelism. And now, um, many churches around the world are growing again. Larger churches, churches of the Muslim world, underground churches. And I could even say a word about the evangelism of the church, of which I'm a member. Our family is at North River, which is one of the Atlanta churches. It's been growing around 20% a year for a number of years. I'd say about half of that is uh, people becoming Christians initially. They, they study the Bible and they get baptized. And probably half are, are lost sheep or restless souls, people who've been wandering or drifting and are just looking for that church home. And they come home and they make their home there. And that's very encouraging at any rate. Let me summarize this lesson. I began with some important um, distinctions between mission and purpose. Our purpose is to know the Lord. Our mission, of course, is to spread the word and help the poor. Evangelism is considerably more than simply starting churches in all nations. That was, that's, an, that's anachronism. Matthew 28 is not talking about the 193 constituent nations of the UN. It's talking about all the peoples of the world, which are thousands of peoples. 
And then I also emphasize that um, my, my impressions on reading Acts, that, that things were not that organized. It was very natural, very uh, you know, grassroots kind of thing. Not highly organized, and yet it was vibrant. Very, very encouraging. And then I shared a bit about how the gospel continued to spread in the first century. Yet there were challenges. Persecution, false teachers, slander, and just the fact that Christians had such a different lifestyle, people couldn't relate to it. And yet, there were several things that helped them. One was the fact that they were living such a different lifestyle. They were so countercultural, it was obvious. Maybe you didn't want to join yourself with people who were that committed, but th- their love for the enemies, their willingness to, to break away from the worldliness of the ambient culture, uh, distinguished them. And there's something very attractive about a holy life. Uh, they were also helped by their homes. Uh, inviting people into your home is a wonderful thing to do. Uh, so much more personal than just inviting them to some uh, public meeting. And they preached a person, not a system. And I shared that when I became a Christian, it was, that really was the way evangelism was. Although in the decades that followed, that changed to our detriment. And now so many people, I'm included, I hope you think this way as well, are trying to go back and really just preach Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. Those are my thoughts on the first century, and in the second podcast, we'll review and then talk about evangelism in the 100s, that is, the second century. I hope this is bringing you some encouragement and some inspiration. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on church history. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.